Our text this morning is from Jude, verses 5 through 7, which is on page 1027 in the Bible, underneath the chair in front of you, if you'd like to look there. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hello again. We are uh, into Jude. We started Jude last week. We're in verses 5 through 7 today. I'm going to pray for us. We'll review a little bit and then we'll get into the passage of Scripture and see what the Lord has for us today. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you for our children. Thank you for our parents. Thank you for um, all those who are members of this place attending here today. I pray for your mercy. I pray for your mercy on us that we would understand what you have us understand today. I pray that you would guide us toward yourself and toward your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's review. So Jude, the namesake for this book of the Bible, is the brother of Jesus, not just the brother of Jesus. He's a worshiper of Jesus. Remember last week, he called Jesus Master and Lord. Um, what he wanted to do in this letter, he wanted to write a letter to this church continuing their Christian education, continue letting them uh, dive deeper into the theology of the thing that they were believing, but he had to go instead back to the basics. Look at, uh, if you're there in Jude, verse three, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common sal- our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The church had been distracted by a false teaching. They had lost sight of the gospel. They believed something else. You can see that in verse 4. As a review, again, Christianity, we talked about last week, is a correspondence has a correspondence view of the truth, meaning what is true is what is, okay? What is true is what is. Now, to some, this might seem like, well, that seems very silly to say, but there are many, many different versions of the truth or visions of the truth in our world, and Christianity is saying, we say this is true because it is the reality of our world. That truth that we see in Scripture from God is inextricably attached to the salvation of the human soul, The teachings of Jesus are are the truth that leads to salvation. And so what did we learn last week? We learned that we, as Christians, we need the flow in and out of our lives of the gospel daily. We need that truth. We need the refreshment that that truth brings. We need the strength that is provided to us by that truth And we need the view of the world that's provided to us by the truth of Jesus Christ. Today, 
in verses five through seven, Jude's making some bodacious statements. Maybe you've never heard the word bodacious in a a sermon before. Well, there you go. Um, As we're going to see, he uses three examples, but what he's going to say about Jesus is that Jesus is the savior of God's people. Not only that, Jesus is the judge over God's people. Jesus is the judge of heaven, and more than that, Jesus is the, is the judge of the whole earth. <laughs> there doesn't leave much out. And he does this by ascribing some historical biblical events to Jesus himself. It's a little mind-bending. We're going there, all right? Um, when he's going to use these three examples, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, By the use of these examples, he's going to reveal two things that the apostles believed about Jesus. There's two truths in the use of these examples. First, that Jesus is God. Second, that the Bible is one story. The Bible is one story. So let's start with Jesus is God. He uses these three examples, and through these three examples, he shows Christ's divine nature. Christ's divine nature. We're going to see through these three examples that Jesus was pre-existent to his birth, that Jesus has authority, uh, the authority of God to judge in heaven and on earth, and Jesus is the I am, the revealed Savior of God's people that we found out in Exodus. Jesus is all those things. And so as a summary of what Jude's teaching through these three examples, what he's reminding, he says that right in verse 5, I remind you, what is he reminding the people that he's writing to about? What is he reminding us about? That Jesus is the eternal judge and Jesus is the eternal savior. That's what we're going to learn about today. That's what Jude is getting at today. So let's take these three examples that he gives. Let's unpack them. We have to do that. And so we're going to take them chronologically, so as they happen in history. So we're going to start in verse 6. And the angels, again, he's ascribing these things to Jesus. And the angels who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he, being Jesus, has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, this is fun. Listen. Uh, This is a scenario, the judgment of the angels, which if you are new to church, you're really glad you came. You've heard about hellfire so far, and now judgment of angels. So we're total full-on weirdos today. Um, Listen, this is an event that happened, and there's there's not a lot in canon about it in details. All right, we in 2 Peter, so another apostle says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept under judgment. He's using that as an example. So this thing happened. This thing happened. Uh, In the Hebrew, a chunk of angels rebelled. That's that's a very specific amount. We don't know how many. We know that uh, uh, it's not really a chunk in Hebrew, just in case you're wondering. Um, a, A bunch of angels rebelled. They rebelled against God. There's some people that ascribe this to certain other stories in the Old Testament. What I'm saying is something happened with the angels. They rebelled. And what we know for sure is that when they were judged, who did the judging? Jesus did the judging. Jesus did the judging. He sent them into gloomy chains Gloomy darkness, it says here. Peter using the same phrase, gloomy darkness. So we have this 
very ancient story of the angels rebelling. Jesus was the one who passed judgment. The next story chronologically is in verse 7. Now, before we get to verse 7, let me uh, lay on you a new term, maybe for some of you not, but the word is theophany, T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-Y, theophany, theophany. We have to use this word because it's easier than saying the times when God comes in the flesh in the Old Testament, but we're not sure if it's Jesus or not. That's just too long. So what is a theophany? It's just that when God appears in the flesh in the Old Testament, here's some examples. So we'll get to one in a second. That, that, that Jude is actually referencing. But think about this. It says in, in, in Genesis that God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening. That is God showing up in the flesh. Another one, Jacob wrestles the Lord. These are some of the more bonkers stories in the Old Testament. He wrestled someone. This someone is called the, the angel of the Lord. This person is also called the Lord. Then we have another one, the fourth man in the furnace with, with me, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel. It's a person in the flesh, and we understand that to be God. So here, Abraham, God has made a promise to Abraham, and here in verse 7, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, the story surrounding this from Genesis 18, you can look it up later, what happens is this. Sarah and Abraham are at home. They are visited by three men. The scriptures make it clear that two of these men are angels, and one is the Lord, the Lord came and they ate and they visited and this is where Sarah laughs and all these things happen but they are there they're on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to pass judgment on this city that had lost all boundaries of sin and so the story goes things get out of control the Lord stays with Abraham they visit longer the two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah things get off the rails it's a really terrible story well in the end what happens they are they are doomed to fire and it says here eternal fire verse 7 just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire who is Jude saying, judged Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus. Jesus did it. We go back to verse 5. We're handling these again chronologically. Jesus is credited as being the one, the one who saved Israel from Egypt. Look at verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So God, in Exodus, reveals himself. This is one of the first big steps in God revealing more of himself. So we had God who had uh, walked with Adam and Eve, had communicated with Noah, had communicated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now when we get to Exodus, I was talking with Steve about this the other day, He says, I am, I am a God of salvation. I've heard my people's cries. I am not just a God who's over you. I'm a God who will save my people. So Exodus, God reveals himself further as this God of salvation. And what has become one of my favorite moments in the Old Testament is actually Jesus in action. This is what Jesus does. If Jesus is the full expression of God, it makes perfect sense that this verse is actually about Jesus, Exodus 14. So here's the scenario. The Israelites have fled Egypt. Pharaoh has changed his mind. They're stuck between the the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies. There's no place to go. And of course, they find immediate excuse to be hopeless. But here's what Moses said. Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. What a powerful passage of scripture. What do we learn from Jude? That's Jesus in action. Jesus saved the Israelites. And so Jude is making a point. Jesus was present and active in each of these scenarios. And it proves that he is not only judge, but he is also savior. Jesus is God. These stories also give us an idea indirectly that the Bible's one story. Listen, scripture is not about a God who's trying out different methods to just get his people to behave. That's not what the story of the Bible's about. It's one cohesive story about God saving his people. And that story is about Jesus from the very beginning to the very end. Because guess what? That's how God's going to do it. And so the Bible is beautiful, church, and we understand it, that from Genesis to Revelation, it's a crescendo of truth. The Bible is a crescendo of truth. Every new part reveals something new, something glorious about who God is and how he will save his people. On a side note, those of you maybe investigating Christianity, I, I want to point out that the Bible itself is a miracle. <laughs> the Bible itself, it's not just one story, but think about this. Here's some statistics about the Bible. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different human authors who, who lived very different cultural lives. It was written in three different languages, and yet still, the story from beginning to end, it's one story. It's cohesive. It lends itself to prove itself. And through all that, the Bible has survived intact. In fact, the Bible, today's count, I think last year or something, we're somewhere around 6,000 New Testament manuscripts, which makes it the most attested historical document. Just the New Testament. Church, hear this. God wants us to have the Bible. He has made sure that we have the Bible. God is committed to the Bible. God's committed to it. We should reflect on what that means, that God has, through all this history, through all these things that could have destroyed the word of God, it survived, and we have it in our own language. And so those of you here that maybe don't consider yourself a Christian, if you want to understand Christianity, if you want to understand Christianity, you have to at least understand that to the Christian, there is a value and a validity to the Bible and that's what our, our belief system is founded on. It's what our belief system is founded on. The Bible is one story. It's been preserved by God. It's infallible and errant, and it's about Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is. Now, problems arise when Christians or non-Christians alike try to what I think R.C. Sproul calls it atomizing the Bible. So when we take the Bible and we chop it up into chunks, either to analyze one thing as separate, it's like trying to analyze one part of someone's quote without the context, or we try to make it mean what we want, it doesn't work, it stops making sense. One quote, I don't know where it came from, but every heresy starts with the Bible. Every heresy starts with the Bible. We take something out of it, and what do we do? We make it mean what we want. We cannot understand the Bible in partial quotes. The Bible, again, is this cohesive story. It's a crescendo of truth. It's the greatest story ever told, and it's about Jesus from beginning to end. 
And so Jude, as he's reminding this church, hey, remember what you were taught. Remember who Jesus is. Remember to go back to the source material. Listen, he's saying Jesus is God and the Bible's one story and it's about him. And so Jude 5 through 7, certainly we're learning about who Jesus is and what the Bible is, but at the forefront, Jude 5 through 7 is a warning. It's a warning. That's why when you read these words, you're kind of like, oh my goodness, fire of hell. It's a warning. It's a warning not just to non-Christians, it's a warning to Christians as well. So let's talk about this. To non-Christians, if you are listening this morning, you're listening on our podcast, whatever it is, and and you are hearing this morning, you're thinking, well, what is Christianity about? And, And you do not believe that Jesus is Savior. The warning to you is this, truth matters. Truth matters. Let's get uncomfortable for a moment. Yes, hell is real. And yes, it's terrifying. In fact, it's so terrifying that that many times, even Christians just want to not think about it. What's that out there? Everybody look. Nobody looked. You all want to talk about hell. I was hoping people would be like, what? And then I would be like, see, you don't want to talk about hell. But you do. So here we go. (laughs) That was terrible. (laughs) I'll report to the session directly after church. Okay. Listen, our human sensibilities, this is not a comfortable topic. It's not. The idea of eternal hellfire, my goodness, it's not comfortable. But listen, it doesn't have to be uncomfortable this morning because that's not the end of the story. Remember, who is judge? Jesus. But also, who is Savior? Jesus. Jesus is Savior. The same person that judges also saves. This is the best case scenario. It would be much harder to look at the problem if there wasn't a clearly laid out solution. The solution is Jesus. Think about this. God is creator. It says in Hebrews that that things were created by by Jesus himself. They're created by him and for him. And so this beautiful relationship that was created, we scattered from it. We went rogue. We said, no, thank you. We ran from it. And that's where judgment comes from. We chose to be out. But what happens? The same creator who made the relationship, he sacrificed himself to make it possible again. He did it himself. He did it himself. He holds the plan on how he will finish the rescue of his people and live with them forever. The same man that judges is the man that saves. Jared Wilson, from one of the commentaries I was reading this week, said this. So where is the comfort amid all this gloom and doom? Jude gives it to us in verse 5. It is Jesus who saved God's people out of bondage in Egypt. He was the active agent rescuing his covenant people from bondage and preparing them to be the means by which the nations of the earth would be blessed. Christ alone saves. He did it in the days of Exodus. He does it today for any sinner who turns trustingly to him. Jesus Christ is judge. Yes, that's scary. Jesus Christ is savior. Immediate bomb to our wounds. So will Jesus judge sin? Yes, sin is inexcusable. There's no way around it. We can't undo it. 
We can't do enough good to outweigh it. Jesus will judge, but also Jesus has saved. He paid already for our sin. He took the judgment himself. So all we have to do is receive that gift. Church, it's a warning for us too. You notice in verse five, Jesus saved. He also judged God's people. One scholar this week, Thomas Schreiner, reformed fella, um, says this. If we're wondering why we have a warning in here, he says this about warnings. Warnings are one of the means by which God preserves his people until the end. Those who ignore such warnings neglect the very means God has appointed for obtaining salvation in the end. The call to perseverance is not a summons to something above and beyond faith. God summons his people to believe in his promises to the very end of their lives. Christians never get beyond the need to believe and trust. And all apostasy stems from a failure to trust in God's saving promises in Christ. So what is Jude warning us about? He's saying, stay in the truth of God. Stay in it. Stay in it. Don't abandon the truth, but more than that, it's a calling for us to discover more and more who God is. So last week we talked about the fact that we need to be in the Bible to receive truths. We handed out these these CBR readings, but it's more than just reading. It's more than just reading. Cool, did it, check. No, we need to engage with the Bible. As we hear or read the word of God, we need to understand who God is. We need to continually believe who God is. We need to apply those things to our life. That's what it's like to read the Bible. And so church, the warning for us is this. We can't go on believing whatever we want. We just can't believe whatever we want. And so our work is not to just read God's word, but to engage with it. And so this week, What I'm hoping to do is bring something practical as much as I can through this sermon series to help us contend for the faith. Last week, we gave out a reading calendar. This week, I want to give out a Bible study tool. And so in the same place, in the slate table under the circular mirror, is this thing. It's called the SPEC, S-P-E-C-K, Bible study tool. It looks just like this. I'm not going to go through the whole thing right now, but it's pretty self-explanatory. It helps you ask questions of Scripture to, to glean meaning from it. We're not just reading, we're gleaning. That sort of rhymes. Um, There's lots of ways to understand what the Bible has for us, but this is a simple way. Even kids can be guided through this to ask simple questions of what we're reading, to hear more about God, to understand, and then we can believe what it says, and then we can apply it to our lives. We need to engage the word of God, not just read it. And so, for instance, if the whole Bible's about Jesus, and this week's CBR reading, community Bible reading, you're going to start, you're in the end of Exodus, which is a description of the tabernacle. What does it have to do with Jesus? Listen, it has to do with Jesus. Or you're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to read about the restoration of a brother who sinned and was excommunicated, but now he's repented and come back in. There's so much here for us, and it's about Jesus. God has something for us To not just read and say, cool, 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 cool. No, it's to learn. To learn, understand, believe, and apply. God's a provider for us. He's a provider. He provides over centuries 
the truth about himself, the full truth that we need to know about himself. He provided it for us. In this also is the truth about us, that we are sinners. We need something we don't have inside of ourselves. It's not there. We can look and look and look, and we won't find it. And I think most importantly, he's given us the truth that, yes, Jesus is the eternal judge. But guess what? Guess what? The same guy that judges is the same guy that paid the price so that we might be saved. I'm thankful for a God that provides. And proof of God's provision, proof that he knows that we need constant provision for our true needs, and proof that he's the satisfaction for those needs is the Lord's Supper. Think about it this way. Even if you haven't read your Bible this week, okay, let's just say that's the case. Or let's say you've never read the Bible ever. You've never, ever even opened it. What you get to see here through this bread and this wine is a visible presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a visible reminder. God provided this for us. He knew that some of us have a hard time reading, and so he gave us visuals, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Why? Because we're sinners. How? Because God loved us and is provided for free. All of that's right here. That's the scriptures. That's the gospel for us. God provided that for us. So this morning, let's focus on the fact that this is a reminder that here at the base of the cross is where this idea of Jesus as judge and Jesus as savior mingle. Yes, our sin costs. Our sin costs. It's expensive. And what did it cost? The very life of Jesus Christ. He broke his body and shed his blood because of what I do and did and will do. My sin, your sin. It's costly. There was a judgment given, and that judgment was taken by Jesus. And that's where the salvation comes in. Jesus stood in our place, and he took that judgment upon himself so that we might freely receive that recreated relationship with God. And so this morning, if you believe these things are true, you know you're a sinner. You know it. And you believe that that your sin nailed Jesus to the cross, but also that his love did that. His love stood in your place, and his love, his plan, his action is the only hope of salvation. If you've made that confession, if you've been baptized, you're called this morning to come and participate in this free expression of grace in the gospel. It's yours. It's all yours. This morning, if you don't believe these things, or if you refuse to believe that anything could be sweeter than that particular sin that you have in your life, the the scriptures make it clear it's not a wise or logical thing to come and participate We're not excluding you, but the scriptures say, if you do not believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, it's not good to come. And so we say, please don't. For your own good, don't come. Let's take a moment to 
confess our sins to God. We had a confession of faith today. So let's take a moment just to confess our sins privately to God, to accept his assurance. I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing and assurance before we prepare to distribute the Lord's Supper. Let's take a few moments on our own. Father in heaven, one thing is for certain in my life that I do not live up to your standards. The other thing that's for certain is that you know and you've made a way for me, a wretched sinner, to be made right with God. Not of my own works. It's not about balancing the scales. It's not about performing. It's not about doing enough so that you feel satisfied. You did it for us. And so this morning, as we confess our sins to you privately, and we say, Lord, I am sorry. I've done it. It was me. I'm guilty. May we also feel the grace and the mercy of justification wash over us. We are assured Assured that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Praise your name. So this morning, Lord, as we come and we eat this bread and we drink this cup, may we soak in the visible reminder of just what it took for us to receive it for free. And may we be motivated, Lord, not just to read our Bibles or listen to our Bibles, but to dig and discover more of who you are, Old Testament to New Testament, to learn about Jesus, our Savior and our judge, our brother and our friend. Bless this time. Make it meaningful in our hearts. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.